As we look, this is, this is our scripture for this morning. Uh, we base all that we do um, around the scriptures in, in this ministry on Sunday mornings and in all of our others. So this is the high point of our worship. So let's go to it. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a, a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of, G- of Jews found that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also be- to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So now the crowd that was with him when he, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray for our pastor this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray for Pastor Mike this morning as he prepares to give um, the message that you have entrusted him with in regards to the words we've read this morning. We pray that the Holy Spirit that inspired that these words be written would be present with him this morning and would be present with us as we listen. That these words would become your words to us and that we would receive them with gladness and um, that they would transform us and the world around us. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Good morning. So glad to be with you at, at worship this morning. Um, I want to say a couple of words of introduction as I uh, go forward. Um, this morning um, is a week before you have this great opportunity called the Women's Bazaar. Have you heard about it? Have you heard about the bazaar yet? 
All right. Because I, I hope you can all go. And if you're not familiar with what the concept of a bazaar is, and some of you may not, uh, it's a deal where we have the church open all Saturday morning and a little bit into the afternoon where there's a great breakfast at the beginning, a great lunch at the end, handballs and all that kind of stuff, and a lot of crafty things. And if you don't know how to bake a pecan pie or something like that, they're here to buy. And everything, every dime goes to, uh, to, to mission from that. So I, I really want to encourage you and invite you to, to come to that bazaar uh, this weekend. And I, I just also want to start with one, one moment of uh, uh, just personal business with the congregation. I, my default mode is, is not to be uh, humbled beyond words. But I would say that in the last couple of weeks, my spouse, Teresa, and I have been humbled by a generous spirit of your love um, at the passing of her dad and all the events that surrounded that, uh, the time through hospice and death and on through the burial. So we really appreciate the, the dozens, and I mean that, dozens of cards we've received and gifts uh, to her dad's memorial. Um, um, we're honored, and I'm grateful to be part of a congregation that loves so uh, greatly and richly, and I uh, want to lead that too, and I certainly hope and pray that when that comes to your doorstep or something like it, um, that you receive the kind of benefit of a love of a congregation that we did. So I, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, poor little Teresa, you know, wore herself down enough that she's really let this cold that's going around right not uh, get her. So even though she would never, if given the opportunity, come up and speak before you, um, I'll say that on behalf of her. So let's uh, go right to the Word of God today. I, I, Pastor Keith and I are, are marching you through the Gospel of John during these uh, 16 or 18 months. So it's important for us to see where we've been, where we are, and where we are going uh, just real briefly at the beginning of this talk uh, because I think it'll point us forward. So we started in December of 2014 um, with the, the first part of John, which was Christ the Eternal Word. The first 18 verses are the prelude or prologue to John, it's usually, usually called. And in that we see this, that before time was, Jesus was. In the midst of time, which is where we're living, Jesus is. And after time, Jesus shall be. He is the prime mover, the great intellect and architect of all that is created. And he, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, were so filled with love that as it began to flow over and out from themselves, they created. And everything that was created was created with Jesus the Son present. And then the second part of the gospel, so you can see that first part is very short. Second part is pretty lengthy, and that's where Keith and I are actually spending most of the time in this uh, teaching time, not just now, but in the whole gospel of John. The word displays his glory, which is to say the word of God, Jesus, shows the glory of the Father in what he does. And in this, we see many miracles, and we see that Jesus is the Lord over nature, Um, all natural laws. As as a matter of fact, in one time we see Jesus come upon a bunch of water, 150 gallons of water, and he transforms it into wine. And another time he comes up upon a a bunch of another water and he walks across it like it's dry land. He he is the the Lord and has dominion over all natural things. And he also is the Lord over all human need. He's able to to rescue people and heal them from various and sundry ailments. He's able to feed thousands when they're out of food, and he's able actually to rebuff death 
as we saw just a couple of weeks ago in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And as we come into this reading today, the reading that Simon just read for you a moment ago, we see that Jesus is at the height of his human popularity, the apex of, of the Jesus movement during his time on, on, on earth is happening at what we call Palm Sunday. And in the Palm Sunday expression, this, this, this parade that comes down from the little city of Bethany down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, which incidentally is closer and shorter distance than from here to Fairway. So get the, you know, we're not talking about a long parade. Um, he comes down the Mount of Olives and into the holy city of Jerusalem. And the cloud, crowds are flocking around him. And as the scripture says, they're flocking around him because of everything he's done, primarily because he's raised Lazarus to the dead, Lazarus from the dead. Now, a little side note. Did you notice when Simon was, was, was reading that, that when Lazarus was raised, raised from the dead, lots of people flocked around Jesus. But did you see what the other group was doing? Yeah, they put a hit out on him. Well, he got back out of the grave. Let's kill him again. As if it would stop him the second time, right? So, so, so you have this, this moment. People are coming around him and they welcome him like a triumphant king and just give you the Wikipedia version of Palm Sunday. They rip off palm branches and wave them in, in the air because that's kind of like the national, national celebration of, of uh, um, Israel nationalism is, is the palm branch. So they're waving those around. They throw them out in front of him. Then they, they sing the, the historic words of the prophet. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the king of Israel. That's what the king was supposed to hear when he came in. And of course, um, Jesus not riding on a war horse like maybe King David or others was, but rather he rode, rode on a small uh, donkey to, to show that he was the Messiah that comes as a gift, not as a conquering Hymno, uh, hero. So, so that's the second part of John. We'll move into the third part of John shortly, which is another big chunk from chapter 13 through chapter 20. The bestowal of the human, of the, of the, uh, 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 the word is glorified. Now what we have here is really exciting if you're a Christian. It'd even be more exciting if you were a Jew and you understood what it meant. Because in John chapter 14, we're going to see Jesus bestow the Holy Spirit on his believers. And that's us. The Jews dreamed of this for years and ages. If you read the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Isaiah and others, they are longing for the Holy Spirit of God to come upon them. Matter of fact, Ezekiel has this vision of dry bones. You know that story? And he sees all the bones of all the prophets of Israel and all that laying out there in a desert and it's very dry and they all come to life by the breath of the Spirit. This is what Israel wants forever. And in John chapter 14, we're going to see that Jesus breathes this into the canisters that we call our holy body, our, our bodies. He breathes the Holy Spirit into us so that we might act be his uh, witnesses here on the earth. And he tells us further, and we'll see this in John chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, and following, that Jesus is able to reverse all the ills that humanity faces. While he chooses not, and this is very clear, important Christian theology, he chooses not to reverse the place that evil has in the world. He chooses not to eradicate illness and all those kind of things that are all at his fingertips and ability. What he chooses to do is take anything that ills you, anything that is evil to you. If you're willing to give it to him, he will take it from you. He will carry it for you and he will give you the resolution in your life that he desires you to have. And that's important for us to understand as Christians. He will take upon himself that which troubles and breaks you and he'll tell you this. And then, and, and this is one of my favorite pieces of art right over here on the pulpit. Jesus is crowned on the cross. That is not the way kings were crowned. 
You see, he gives his life because this is the gift. It's not taken from him. And unlike a coronation where they'd put a purple robe on him and a crown filled with jewels and march him down the center aisle, Jesus wears as his robe a cross and as his crown a ring of thorns and as the cup of celebration, we use his blood. And he transforms and redefines what human life and and death means. And then we come to the last chapter, and I apologize because I gave it to him wrong. It's actually chapter 21, but the last chapter is the word commissions his followers. He sends us to do his thing. See, a lot of times when we come to Easter Sunday, we think that the Easter message is Jesus comes out of the grave and goes, ta-da, I'm back. And that's not what it is. That's the transition point. See, Jesus is back from the dead, but he comes back to send us to something else, not just to show us that he could do it. We should have already known that if we'd been paying attention. He comes to deploy those who believe in him as his hands and feet and voice in the world. That's where we're going. So let's get to the matter at hand. Let's take a look at the situation at hand in John chapter 12. Take a look at this picture that's on your screen. You have a number of things going on at the same time. That's what the word simultaneous activity mean. You have Jesus at the apex at the top of this. And you have this movement of many people praising and believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is welling up, and that's what causes the parade at Palm Sunday. That's what causes people to, to really get out of the closet, such it was, as it was from, in, in regards to faithfulness. At the same time, simultaneously, you have the Jewish leaders determining to arrest and execute him. And that grows exponentially, because remember, not too long ago in this very same book, the Jewish leaders have said, you know, it's better to, to, to kill one for the sake of the nation, talking about Jesus, but now they're adding Lazarus, better to kill two, and you're going to see this movement grow and grow and grow through centuries of Christianity, that those who are against Christ... Um, are willing to do some devious and difficult things. So we come to the story of Jesus' anointment. The story of Jesus' anointment is a story of affirmation and resistance because both of those things are present. You see, in all things, there seems to be affirmation and resistance, no matter what it is. I remember um, a few years ago, I was at the bank. Uh, It's Friday afternoon. And this was before all of our paychecks got deposited automatically. Remember those days where you actually got a paycheck? And, and the bank I went to is just like four blocks from a huge um, home products, uh, Frigidaire home products uh, factory. So Friday afternoon after third, three o'clock, they would just flood in there. Well, this particular Friday afternoon was ice cream day at the bank. It was free ice cream day with sprinkles. And sprinkles are for winners. You know that. So it was awesome. I went in there and I was like, Free ice cream day, this is awesome. And of course, all those guys coming in from the factory and gals coming in the factory, they're like, this is awesome, ice cream. You know, they're pulling the soft serve machine, dumping the sprinkles on it. And I walked over to Frank, who's the bank president, and he's standing there kind of with his suit and tie on, looking over. I said, Frank, this is awesome, free ice cream, cream today. And he says, yeah, what a mess. So you have affirmation and resistance to anything, right? Frank, you know, all of his customers loved it, but the bank employees themselves hated it because all they could think about was wiping up, you know, uh, sour milk and sprinkles and vacuuming off the floor. That's human nature, you know. It's human nature to affirm and resist stuff. You know, when something new comes out, about 90% of the world sees something shiny and new and says, man, I got to have that. 
But there's always a little resistance. Remember like a couple of years ago when these Fitbits came out or the things like them? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but some of you have them, right? Got these little, apparently they're really attractive pieces of rubber jewelry that people love. And they keep your heart rate and how many times you swung your hand today and all that kind of stuff. And they're cool. Everybody wanted them, right? And then there's people like me that kind of resist. I just kind of like, no, I'm good. Okay. You know, uh, you know, and that's just part of human nature. We have to anything we have, we have affirmation and resistance. And when you, when you encounter new behaviors, it's like that too. I came from, uh, to you, 12 and a half years ago, I came from a very um, electric and alive church in north central Iowa. Um, but there's a couple of things that were different that I had to get my mind around. When I first came to Marion Methodist, I thought, oh my gosh, this is the clappingest church I'd ever said. Please stand for the call to worship. All right. Here comes the children. All right. Here come, and the, you know what? You guys clap for everything, but here's the end of the sermon. <laughs> but they clap for, hey, thank you. Thank you. You know, they'd usually stay till the end, but there was no clapping at the end of the sermon. I'm like, this is a clapping church. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll get my mind around. I'm not a big fan, but okay, you know, it's a church I came to. The only time we ever clapped was the little kids sang and we couldn't hold her. Oh, it was terrible. Uh, we love you. I mean, you know, and, 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 and we, we did that kind of stuff, but when I came here, and then the other thing I noticed when I came here was I got up here the first Sunday, it was 12 and a half years ago, so I mean, culture changed, and I stood up here, and I'm looking up here today, and I know I'm the only one, only one dork in a tie in the whole building. I remember coming to 830, I thought, well, they're all serious and formal, and there was a guy in the back row that used to have a big clothing store in town, and he wasn't wearing a tie either. I'm like, okay. So that's the environment. And I, I was like, you know, from, a, from an agricultural center, they're very formal on Sunday morning, which is interesting to me. Um, and when I came here, I was like, okay, well, all right, good. I can get around with that. That's fine with me. I'll, I love wearing jeans and stuff like that. But, but you know, when we were greeted with something new, you have to decide, are you going to affirm it or are you going to resist it? Well, at the anointment of Jesus, there's something very, very different happening. First and foremost, a woman, get this, a woman walks into the middle of a bunch of men. And she's not carrying any food to serve them. And she does something that was way off the charts of the social correctness. She, she didn't have hoodies, but they wore kind of scarves that were like kind of hoodies back then. And she pulled her hair and she exposed her hair in front of the men, which is, again, another social thing you're not supposed to do. And then she knelt down and she busted open this jar, which according to what Simon read, has got a pint of, of pure nard. And she pours it on Jesus' feet. Now, I don't know if there's a bucket behind it, blow them or not, or it's, but there's no towel or anything like that. And, and, and instead of just rubbing it in or catching it, she leans so close to him that she wipes his hair, his, her feet with her hair. Now, you've got to be pretty close to someone to do that. And she has completely uh, humbled herself, given herself completely and fully to Jesus. She is purposely being extravagant. She's laid out more than a year's wages according to the resistance that, that's coming. And she's done it all on purpose. And what you see in, in anything is that there's resistance and affirmation. And here you see the affirmation of extravagant acts of faith. Jesus absolutely affirms what the woman's doing. He embraces it. He, he allows it to happen. I mean, because, you know, Jesus is a young guy in his 30s. 
You trying to tell me if he didn't want that to happen, he couldn't have pulled his foot away and backpedaled out of there? You trying to tell me that since she was a woman with his boys around him, he couldn't, he couldn't have said, hey, fellas, move her away. No, no, he wanted this to happen. He allowed it to happen. And as a matter of fact, her faith was so extravagant that he used it to make a point. He says, you know, she knows my path. She knows what you guys should all know right now. She knows that my path, the path of this ministry, leads to my death. And you need to understand that. You need to get your mind around it. She, she affir- he affirms her extravagant acts of faith. Now, there's resistance here too. See, because every time there's an extravagant act of faith, there's always resistance to this extravagant act of faith. So here's Judas saying, hey, hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. One solitary second here. This money she's wasting on the floor here and on this on our Jesus' feet could have been used to, to, to feed the poor. Could have been used somewhere else. Could have been used to, to greater the kingdom. Now, he's, he's probably, I'm not going to get into the Judas message. Might, likely, he's using his own piety to block his true motive. But pushback to extravagant acts of faith is pretty typical, wouldn't you say? Pretty typical. When you see somebody acting extravagantly in their faith... Pushback is natural. I'll give you some examples. Now, even though these guys in my confirmation class might think that I was on the building committee in the 1890s that built this church, I was not. And neither were any of you. And I'll tell you what. There was a time when they were going along in the planning of this church and they, they, took, they took a moment and they said, all right, listen, because I know a little bit of this history, listen, we're about to spend $30,000 on this church. Do you really think we need stained glass windows? There's better ways to keep the cold out. There's cheaper ways to insulate the building. Do we really need to adorn it with so much art? And you know there was some resistance in there, don't you? There was somebody that said, that's not practical. That's extravagant. That's extravagant. Aren't you glad they did? They're not all memorialized. I mean, you look at them, there's memorial plates. Most of the memorials in this, on these windows were done after the building, and some of them are not even memorialized yet, which meant a corporate decision said, let's be extravagant for those that are coming. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad they did? I, I remember meeting with a, a woman one time, I had, I had met with her son. Her, her son, she'd sent her son to confirmation because confirmation was one of those things that you did in her family. You didn't really have to come to church any other time, but you had to go to confirmation. So Brandon came to confirmation, and he was one of those students, and, and you guys have all seen him before, where he got into something, and, it, and, his, and his heart just opened to it. He started meeting Jesus Christ. He started knowing what that was about. And he wanted more of it. And so when his family quit coming, because, you know, he'd graduate confirmation and all that, um, he, he kept finding rides to church. He lived way out in the country. We'd find rides to church. He'd come to, we had the equivalent of 412, a different kind of thing, but same, same basic message. And Brandon started getting more and more and became a leader in it. And he came, started talking. And, and so his mother, he was a senior in, in high school, a very good athlete and all that kind of stuff. He ended up being a scholarship division one athlete. So we're not talking about just any decision he's making here. So he's trying to figure out what he wants to do with his life, trying to figure out where he's going to college. And his mother calls me and says, we need to talk about Brandon. And I'm like, well, okay, he's a high school senior. Anything could be going on. Let's talk. 
And she comes in and she sits down and she tells me all these offers he's got in front of her. She tells me all the stuff that's happened to Brandon. She says, listen, he's trying to decide who he's, who he's going to be. He's trying to decide what college to go to. He's trying to decide what he's going to I said, yeah, that's great. And she says, well, listen, here's the thing. He's basing every decision he's making on what he thinks Jesus Christ would have him do. I'm like, that's awesome. Walk off, right? And she says, you've got to tell him to stop being so religious. Yeah, you knew that wasn't going to happen, didn't you? And I'll tell you today, Brandon's 30 years old. He's a productive member of society. He's very active in a church in Ankeny. Got his degree at Iowa State and all that kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, he was being so extravagant in his faith. It was making people around him resist it. He was so involved in it that, that people around him, closest to him, were pushing back. And when, when I talk to you about these Jesus windows, you know, aren't you, aren't you glad that, that, that most of our lives are living in, underneath the benefit of someone else's extravagant act of faith? I, I remember years ago, I was, I was in my office in Simpson College, minding my own business. This little dude about this tall, he looked like he was 150 years old, walked into my office. And he says, you know, you're around a lot of college students. Why don't you get involved in this camp program? I'm like, okay, maybe. He says, it's for athletes. And I'm saying, what do you know about athletes? You're a piano-playing preacher. And he says, well, I want to tell you about this camp. His name is Stan Wilson. He says, I want to tell you about this camp. It's called Summer Games. You've got to go once. I says, sounds stupid, but I'll try. And that's how it was, too. So I went to summer games, and I'll tell you this, I've, been a, I've led summer games camps 25 different years in the summer, and I will tell you this, I'm glad he was so extravagant. I'm glad he was so bold. I'm glad he was willing to put up the resistance, because I'm not going to overestimate this, but I will tell you that I know many, maybe hundreds of lives that have been impacted for Jesus Christ. And if some of you have kids that live in your homes that have been to summer games, I know you're saying, I'm glad. And I've seen many kids come to know Jesus Christ for the first time at Summer Glams. And all I can say is, aren't you glad? You know, a few months ago, Stel Nestor and I and some others were in Las Cahabas, Haiti. And, and a pastor looked right in our eyes and without any hesitation said, will you please build me a church? Will you build my congregation a church? Because they were meeting in places that our cars wouldn't have parked. They were meeting in a horrible situation. Tarps and little pieces of wood that they'd found along the road. And our friend Al was standing beside us and he says, you know, the cost of that church is less than how much your church and my church spill during a year, Mike. And I got to praying about that and thinking about it. And the, the extravagant gifts of this congregation were so much towards our trip, the trip I was on to Haiti, and the next one, that still... Still, we have $20,000 in the bank for our Haiti mission, and we spent $8,000 on a church down there. So right now, you know, it's a, quarter after, or it's a quarter to one down there in Haiti, 
But right now, outside Alaska Hobbes, Haiti, there were about 200 folks that came to worship this morning in a building that you most likely will never see, using lights that you'll probably never get the benefit underneath a roof that will never shower you from a single raindrop. But in the name of Jesus Christ, they are thinking about marrying a place they'll never come and saying, man, that was extravagant. Aren't we glad? Aren't we glad? See, extravagant acts of faith is where we're supposed to live because no matter what the extravagant act of faith, if other people aren't in the place of the one that's making or the ones that are making that extravagant act of faith, they're going to be pushing back. They're going to be pushing back on you. But here's the Jesus message. It's pretty simple. I'm not going to make it hard today. Do not neglect the opportunity that's in front of you. Jesus is rebuffed by his own disciples. Hey, we should have spent this money on the poor. And Jesus says, listen, the poor will be always with you. That's true, you know, from generation to generation. But I won't always be with you. So revel in that. That's an important Jesus message, whether it's at this worship service, whether it's at a moment in your personal prayer life, whether it's when you're listening to Christian radio or, dra- or dragging something into your ears on your iPad or iPod. When, when, you, when you come into the presence of God, when you come face to face with Jesus, forget about everything else. Just revel in the presence and trust the rest of the Christian community to take care of whatever else we're supposed to be doing. And what Jesus is saying is, Don't worry about the poor right now. Trust in others right now for these few moments. I'm not telling you to neglect the poor right now because you're not to neglect the poor. But right now, I'm present with you face to face. Revel in that because it ain't coming back around very often. And that's the message to us. See, Mary could not be contained. She was in the presence of Jesus and her faithfulness could not be contained. So she bought what she bought. She did what she did and she was not going to neglect the opportunity before you, before her. I want to share with you just one recent witness of this and, and, then, and then we'll walk out. I, uh, this, this past Monday, I was like I am now. I was standing in an elevated position. My, my father-in-law, Chava, Salvador Alnez, was here in the casket. American flag draped over it. And the Navy guy's back there because he'd served in World War II. Um, Paul Bearer's family all around. And I was leading a service. I didn't know I was going to be leading, but that's okay. I, I have experience. And so I was leading this graveside service or the burial service. And at a certain point, I just said, look, let's, let's take some moments here. Let's give some space for you to witness to Chava's life. And so, um, you know, one grandson, granddaughter after another began to speak. And then my nephew, um, Brett uh, Atkinson, spoke. And uh, he said, uh, you know, I called Chava three years ago. After I'd called all of your, he called me and he said, this is how he started his conversation with me. He says, Mike, I'm going to die. I said, what's wrong? And he sent me a picture. He sent me a picture on a cell phone. I mean, this dude who was normally a robust, 180 pounds, he was going about 120 and he looked like a carrot. He was bright orange. He was tiny, 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 tiny. He was, as he would say, um, one of the best functional alcoholics you'd ever meet. He drank all day long, every day, never was sober, never was drunk, because he was always drunk. (coughs) So he called Chava, my my father-in-law, 
And he says to him, I'm going to die. And he says, why? He says, because I'm a drunk. And, and Sal, who uh, had been 55 years sober when he died, an alcoholic himself, said to him, Brett, don't worry about what's coming. Worry about today. One day at a time. <coughs> Pardon me. Just worry about today. Pray that God will help you through today without drinking and let God carry you on this. And Brett was standing there beside the casket, so you know the story has a good end, right? So he became sober two years ago on that day and staying beside his, <clears throat> his wife's grandfather's casket, he said, I don't want to neglect the opportunity to share with you that Chava told me one day at a time and then he said probably the most important thing he's ever said to me he says Brett wake up and say today is going to be the best day of your life and he says you know what to all of us you know 50 or 60 of us he says you know what I wake up every day and I pray to God and I said today can be the best day of my life. And oftentimes it is. That's awesome. That's awesome. But he knew the group that he was speaking to. See, Brett knew that two of the others in our family circle need to hear the same one day at a time message that he heard. Two of the others of us needed to hear that, man, don't worry about quitting drinking forever. Just quit for today and tomorrow. And let it go from there. He was unwilling to neglect the opportunity. And I remind you of the same. Every day opportunities are going to come to you. Opportunities are always going to be there for you and for me. Maybe about that issue, but certainly about others. And the question is, and the question that's always before us, is will we speak into them? Will we act into the opportunities and bless our community or bless that one that needs blessing that's right before us? Because I'll tell you this, you have to speak more times than it's going to be heard. Okay, it's going to, you need to speak. If you ever try to help anybody quit drinking, they quit drinking when they're ready. You've got to speak more time than they're heard. Anytime you're trying to bring someone to Christ, you've got to speak more times than it's heard. But are you willing to bless by taking the opportunity that's in front of you? The people that you know and love that are before you. Because there's this old Talmudic expression that goes like this. And it speaks right into you right now. If not here, then where? If not now, then when? If not you, then who? Who will it be? See, I have one life, and so do you. You have one life and one lifetime in which to live that life. Let us not neglect the opportunities that God gives us. Be extravagant with your faith, regardless of the, ex, uh, of the resistance. See, there's never been a time in Christian history where Christianity was not resisted. It was resisted from the moments of Jesus first speaking about the truth of God through today and through as many tomorrows as we can see. So, so be extravagant in your faith, regardless of the, existence, uh, the resistance. Be extravagant in your faith. Don't hold yourself back. 
That's the one message for today. And I speak it to you in the name of the only one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.